Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back. Paul Edemo with us. Paul, soon to celebrate 50 years in paranormal research. Paul was one of those first investigators of the early 70s, beginning while he was studying for the priesthood. His early mentors include parapsychology pioneer Dr. Louisa Ryan and Father J. Nicola, S.J. technical advisor for the film The Exorcist and legendary first-generation ghost hunters Ed and Lorraine Warren. Here's Paul back on Coast to Coast. Paul, welcome, my friend. How are you? Thank you, George. How are you? Good. And Tom's telling me that Ben has gotten married. Yes, three years ago. How old am I? Uh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> people, well, people heard him grow up on the air, including on your show. Does he still dabble with the paranormal? Oh, yeah. We're still partners. Okay, partners great. Time, we still do our radio show, and he's coming with us to Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm not going to say exactly when, but there's a wild and woolly case down there you might want to hear about sometime. It's a flap area, lots of Bigfoot. I had a, my own Bigfoot sighting there in 2016. You could have knocked me over with a feather. Just the beginning. So he's he's uh, still in there with me. Super. Well, you uh, constantly update us on paranormal research cases because we'll always have you on, Paul. They're fantastic. They're, so what have you been doing since uh, we last chatted with you on the program a couple of years ago? Yeah, yeah. I'm telling you, time flies when you're having fun. The uh, <clears throat> we have a new book coming out in August, which isn't that far away, I guess. Um, it's called "Dancing Past the Graveyard: Parasites, Poltergeists, Parallel Worlds, and God." I wish we could have found a, a P synonym for the deity, but we couldn't. Anyway, it's uh, <clears throat> going to be quite um, a number of things that I've never written about before, because I really didn't want to. I hated writing this book. It was uh, there were a lot of memories I'd worked very hard to bury. And I had to kind of dig them up. But, you know, I don't know if we're more or less the same vintage or not, but when you get to a certain age, you realize that if you haven't told the story yet, you might get, not get the chance to. So I thought right. it was better to write it than not to. Well, good for you. Yeah, but, you, you know, you, your work in the paranormal has been exemplary. You, you, you are dedicated. Uh, I always got a kick out of interviewing you and, and, and Ben, um, you know, you, as you brought him along in this. Uh, you, you do a great job, Paul. We need more people like you. That's very kind of you to say. Thank you. So you started off wanting to be a priest. What happened? Well, <clears throat> that uh, was a <laughs> long story. I spent many years in the seminary, and as a matter of fact, I spent um, my high school years. You could you could still do that then. In 1967, at the age of 14, I entered the seminary. Now you have to be in a regular school. I think it's a good idea. <clears throat> and then in... Um, Seventy-one. I graduated from that level and went on to the college level, uh, and then into the the so-called major seminary, which is two years of philosophy, four years of graduate theological studies. I did the two years of, of philosophy, and then I decided to switch from the Roman Catholic Church to the Eastern Orthodox Church. Aha! Uh-huh. Everybody says, "How? What?" And uh, <clears throat> that never happened in the seminary. The Bishop of Ogdensburg, New York, where I was in the seminary, had a big investigation. You know seminarians didn't leave the church, you know. But I was at the right academic level to continue into their seminary, and uh, while the seminary at Wadhams, uh, I should say the faculty at Wadhams Hall Seminary in upstate New York, uh, my undergraduate uh, college seminary, was very sympathetic to this work in the paranormal, much to my surprise. Uh, the Orthodox were not. You know, as a new convert, keep your nose in your books. They did not like my paranormal work, and they did not like Ed and Lorraine Warren. So... Jeez. It, it actually, what happened was in 1977, really the first day or two of 1977, out I went. Uh, they didn't even want to talk to me. 
And uh, someone accused me of performing an exorcism. On there was a, I guess there were politics in the student body, and and one of the students accused me of which was of course utter nonsense. I would never do such a thing. Um, but anyway, out I went, and um, I, I they would they talked about bringing me back, and but they never did, and probably maybe the church and I both had a lucky escape. But uh, you were assisting on exorcisms, weren't you? Well, that was in that was in the previous seminary, yeah. And this is the first chapter of the new book, as I say, stuff I did right. not want to to uh, write about, but you know, just felt an obligation. Well, it was it was part of your life. You you yeah, had exactly. to do it. It was 1973. I was 20 years old, and uh, the uh, I had been working at this for two years. Uh, I'd written something uh, the previous year that Lorraine Warren had written. That's how I got to know them. And I had the theory that ghosts, which are present, as you know, in every culture and pretty much throughout history everywhere, uh, were souls in purgatory. The mm-hmm. good old Roman Catholic doctrine, if you're not quite good enough to go to heaven, not quite bad enough to go to hell, you go to purgatory for a while. And just wait it out. Yeah, exactly, to be purged, or hence the name. And that, that was actually how I started out. And I'd gotten knocked sideways by the, the, the uh, unlikelihood of that theory in light of what I had actually experienced in my earliest cases. So um, anyway, I was, uh, th- this was, was kind of uh, known uh, on, on a small scale, and there was a priest who lived at, at Wadhams Hall who was a um, rather mysterious figure when I first saw him. He didn't teach. Uh, I knew he was the chaplain at the local, um, well, <laughs> the St. Asylum, uh, the St. Lawrence State Hospital, which was right up the road from the seminary on the St. Lawrence River. And his name was Father Lawrence. His first name was Lawrence. And uh, he kind of was uh, eyeing me, and he called me up to his room one time, and he, and he knew all about what I was doing. I, I hadn't made any secret of it to the faculty when I went there, and my bishop knew all about it. He didn't like it either. But Father Lawrence said, uh, so you've been working with Ed Lorraine Warren. I see, and, and after a number of conferences, uh, he asked me to come with him to the state hospital, where he was the Roman Catholic chaplain, but he was also the exorcist for the Diocese of Augensburg, New York. Uh-huh. Okay. Now, every, every diocese, which is a regional section of the church headed by a bishop, a Catholic church, has a, uh, a, an exorcist, someone who is trained in the paranormal, or, or at least their narrow version of the paranormal, and uh, will be called upon if any cases like this arise. Uh, they are very careful with this. It's very hush-hush, etc. So uh, in uh, October of 73, I was brought in uh, to, as an assistant to him. And I, I was absolutely fascinated by how, how this was set up. Uh, there, were, there, were, there was a doctor who had to be present. There were, there were two nurses. There was another fellow who was a, an attendant. His name was Leonard. He was a humongous guy. And uh, this was sort of this team that we had all this year, uh, 1973 and into 74, uh, to perform. Uh, and there were, about, there were seven people, um, ranging in age from 17 to someone in the 70s. And uh, the, the, really the, the first one and the worst one for me was, was a young girl named Barbara, who was 17 years of age. And uh, they're, they're very careful with this. You know, in other words, you know, so how would doctors believe in exorcism and call in a priest? Well, if things are taking place outside the patient's sphere of, of physical influence, in other words, if the doctor's standing by the bed and the nurses are, and stuff starts flying off shelves on the other side of the room, obviously this, this, these are not phenomena attributable to the person's uh, you know, psychiatric condition right. Right? Right. or medical condition or anything else. And when the patient would float off the bed or something, obviously uh, this was uh, something you'd, you'd have to call in some outside help for. And uh, these were days when 
um, there was a little less paranoia, except about this. Um, and, and when I tell you, you're going to wonder, when I tell you the story, you know, how these things were kept quiet. But in any case, uh, Barbara was 17. We had to get her mother's signature, uh, who was an alcoholic. Uh, as uh, I began to learn at, at the state hospital there, paranormal phenomena and psychiatric, psychiatric conditions can be intertwined, and it can get very, very tangled, and, are, and it can become a real mess. So uh, Barbara, uh, my first meeting uh, with her was with Father um, Lawrence. We went in, and uh, one of the nurses was there trying to uh, feed her with a spoon. She was addicted to drugs, and there was all sorts of trouble that way. And this is in the state hospital? This is in the state hospital, okay. you know, uh, St. Lawrence State Hospital, which um, uh, was a rather progressive hospital for its time. There was a, They tried to establish a family atmosphere, and it wasn't quite the... You know something out of uh, you know Jack Nicholson movie at the time, and it was a little bit better than that. But still, these things would happen. So um, he, uh, inter- he, she said, "Who's that?" And he said, "Well, that's Paul. That's one of the seminary students." And, he, and she said, "He's good looking." <laughs> so at least, <laughs> at least she had a sense of humor. But then uh, almost immediately, the, the bowl of soup flew out of her hands and the nurse's hand, hit the ceiling, and then came clattering to the floor. And there was this this kind of tepid soup all over the priest and myself. And I was kind of shocked at that. Now, uh, but flew, long flew, short, flew out of her hands, though, or tossed out? It, it flew up. All right. All the way up to the ceiling and, and, and back. And this is an old building, so it was a high ceiling. But to make a long story short, um, they have to exhaust all medical possibilities before even considering exorcism. Uh, Father Lawrence believed that that had been done. Uh, medical tests of all kinds, you know, and this sort of thing was a long process. Uh, in the Roman Catholic tradition, uh, the bishop has to approve an exorcism, has to approve the exorcist. Uh, people have to, who are participating in, on the, the team, as it were, have to go to Mass, receive communion, go to confession. It's a, there's a lot of spiritual preparation. They have to fast. So I had to do all that. Uh, so in October, well, late October of 73, we came in there, and um, among the, the things that happened were um, probably the, the, the worst People ask, you know, what is the scariest thing that ever happened to me? And I think other than, the, than having my belief system shattered on several occasions and having to consider new approaches to this, there was, uh, on the second reading of the exorcism, there, there were uh, three exorcism prayers. Uh, and the, the first, before that, there is, there is a demand by the exorcist for the, the, the demon, quote-unquote, to tell its name. And I had read this, and I asked Father, I mean, well, what do you, how do you know the thing's telling the truth? I mean, you know, and he said, well, they're bound by the authority of Christ to, to tell the truth. So I said, all right, I'll buy that. So the thing, um, she had said its name was Chal. Chal. I, I spelled that C-H-A-L-L. And it had come, it originally started with a Ouija board, you know, which is 60% of my cases, it's kids fooling with Ouija boards, which is a, sort of a sledgehammer technique to, uh, to, to cut through uh, parallel reality of the membranes, or we can get into that later if you want. But anyway, you shouldn't do it. So uh, th- we got through that. And then then the se- in the, the, the second exorcism prayer, uh, we got to that part. And the first, the first exorcism prayer on the first day had been relatively uneventful. But we got to the second one. And uh, uh, this voice came out of her when he demanded its name, and it was a very deep but vaguely female voice. It was not hers, and it said, Chow. All right. Wow. And I said, I didn't say anything. In my mind, I said, yeah, right. 
it was as if that thing had heard me. And I've never said this to you before. I've said it very seldom on the air, and it's very difficult to talk about. But when I was seven years of age, I witnessed my father's suicide. Oh, my God, Paul. Exactly. And, and oh. it was, you know, obviously the defining point of my life. This thing seemed to know all about it. And, and it said in a, a, a language I had never heard. The doctor had to look it up. The doctor was recording all this. Well, no what kind of language it. was it? It turned out to be melee. Really? I mean, I mean what, what, you know, uh, and so it, and he, they wouldn't tell me what it said because it took him a while to, dis, to discover what it meant. And at the end of the school year in, in May of 74, uh, Father Lawrence sat me down. We had a you know, very spiritual conversation, and he said, I don't feel right not telling you what it said. And it said, <laughs> excuse me, it, it said, I was there when your father killed himself. I told him to do it. Oh my God! So and nobody and, would know that. No, ha, had nobody that had that been in English at the time, I really would have lost it. You know, I and bet this, this thing it had told the it claimed to be in the Ouija board claims to be an, an Asian prince from who knows when whose whose who's own father had killed him. You know, and I don't buy any of that stuff. You know, they do what they have to do to push buttons, but a number of things sort of came to my sort of sense of, of what was really going on. Well, were you floored when you heard that? I was extremely upset. Okay. I ext- and I had headed home for the summer, and I kind of kept to myself for a while. Well, upset because it brought back horrible memories, or well, upset because... because, because th- you know, could this, this, this thing... If you're ever in the presence of these things, I didn't feel, you know, evil as such. I felt uh, a sort of sterility, a sort of, of alienness and otherness. And every time I've been in the presence of these things, and this is why I don't think that, that, that they're you know, demons in any classical sense. I mean, they fill the bill, but they were more like parasites. I think that this thing, I think, was feeding on the, on the very ceremony of the exit, on the very ritual. You know, yeah. but in any case, I thought, you know, Father was going to tell me, you know, maybe you should kind of back away from this. But he, but he didn't do that. He's, I think he saw me as, he says, if this is going to be a ministry for you, you have to learn to, to, to deal with these things. And he said that they're, and it, it could get worse. So I said, oh, geez, you know, but uh, I had, a, you know, but he was very um, supportive, and I thought maybe he saw me as a diocesan exorcist someday. But anyway, you know, it, it, was, it was extremely difficult, but all through the whole process, and he told me, you'll, you'll understand. Well, I think maybe I did understand, but not in the way he expected me to. I think that this whole ritual feeds, the, the, I, we call, I call them parasites today. Yeah. Energy parasites, you know. I think that they will push buttons, they will be whatever you want them to be so they can eat. And I think it's literally what they're doing. Um, there would be... They feed off this. Yeah, I think so. Because uh, when you prepare to assist in an exorcism like this, all of us were, as I say, you know, we prayed and fasted, and we were, we were calm. But then as, as things began to happen slowly, you know, people would get more upset. Now, the, the nurses had, they'd seen this kind of thing before, but that they would kind of get upset. And naturally, this, whatever it said, I just, you know, I knew it was to me. I just couldn't understand it until they translated it for me months later. But it was, I think this thing was feeding on it. And, and they will, because very often, um, these exorcisms, exorcisms will take place, but uh, they don't work. Or they will appear to work, and then the person comes, or, or as the ritual calls it, the sick person will kind of revert to this situation. How important, uh, heard, how important, though, Paul, is the exorcist 
in these in these dealings? That that's that's an excellent question, and I wondered that. Now, now Father Lawrence happened to be, at least in my from what I could see, a very spiritual, lovely man, uh, very strong in his faith, and a a, a, a person, perfect person to be doing this. Uh, there is a, uh, a a heresy that was condemned by the Catholic Church uh, early on uh, in the history of, of Christianity, and that was called Donatism. And Donatism uh, said that that uh, the efficacy of something like that didn't mention exorcism, the efficacy of the sacraments depended on the holiness of the priest. And I don't know whether this was some move toward job security or something, but that was condemned. And it said any priest who's you know ordained has has the um, the, the 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 power or the or the uh, ability from Christ to do things like this, you know, regardless of the you know it doesn't depend on the on the holiness of the person. I know I've never really bought that. You know, maybe so maybe I'm a Donatist. You know, what I mean, <laughs> but uh, I think that uh, the um, even Father Lawrence, who seemed to be very good at this. Something, you know, exorcisms can take weeks, sometimes months. Mm-hmm. You know, and, but he he seemed to wrap these things up relatively quickly in a matter of like a week. And but I heard later on that after I graduated, it's a wonder I graduated. I did uh, that he would have to go back and and re-exorcise these people. Uh, Barbara herself died within three years of a um, of a drug overdose. Oh, so I mean, it's it's just it, it stayed. I think so, yeah. yeah. But it, it sometimes can take other forms and, and continues. You know, I've seen parasites attached to families for generations. I was in your neck of the woods, although, you know, in California, mm-hmm. uh, at the Learning Connection one, this is many years ago, and uh, it was one night class, I was speaking to a rather large audience of folks from the San Diego area, and they had, uh, there was one woman who kind of, she just grabbed my attention, and you know, I mean, it wasn't because she was particularly attractive, right? It was, but it was because there was something with her. And she came up to me afterwards, and we had a long talk. And it seemed that she was from a family of a Mediterranean extraction, and uh, not, not not that that means means anything, but that she they had had uh, parasitical attachments in her family for generations. And we have found that there are a number of different species of these things that will feed sometimes on on families for whole generations uh i think that the uh, the the phenomenon of possession as we call it is not quite what the theology says it is not only do these things feed upon the ritual in my opinion i think that they they can um t- there are um things that have to happen first the person who is possessed, quote-unquote, has to, I think, tacitly agree to it. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.